All right, will you please stand and open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be reading, no, sorry, chapter 3. We'll be reading 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born, born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he, can, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates. The light has not come in the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he, who does the tr- but he who does the truth comes to comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. On December 18th, we were planning uh, this particular message, this particular text, John 3.16. And we come back to this this week. Uh, wanted to pick up the conclusion of where we were in December, looking at why Christ came, right? We were talking about, have we forgotten why he came? And so, so this message here in John 3.16 captures a large part of why Jesus came to earth. But I really believe, and also wanted to preach this message this week, Because I believe in many ways, it is foundational, it's vital, it's absolutely critical 
to moving forward in any kind of relationship walk with Jesus Christ. Understanding John 3.16 is paramount to your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely significant. It's a great way to start a new year. Making sure that everyone has a handle and an understanding of what these simple words and numbers mean. John 3, 16. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day, this first of many Lord's Days to come in this new year. We take each one as you give them to us. And Lord, I pray that as we receive those Lord's Days, we would steward them well for your honor and for your glory. That as we come together as your people, we would do so honoring and acknowledging who you are. Father, you've given to us a word here this morning. It's one of those familiar words of scripture I'm fairly certain that that many of us, if not all of us in this room, have heard this verse before. But Lord, I pray you would awaken us to what it means. Awaken us to the action on our end, the response on our end that you've called for from this verse. I pray, Father, that we would be awakened by your truth to live this verse out just as we would live any of these verses in Scripture out. You've called us not just to believe in words on a page, but to allow and see that our belief translates to behavior. So, Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit you'd do a great work this morning as your word goes out, that it would land on hearts, it would land in minds, and that it would flourish in the lives of your church here. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of you probably have seen from time to time someone in a crowd, right? Hold up this sign. John 3.16. Wherever there are large numbers of people, I've seen it in the Super Bowl, World Series, uh, maybe it's a marathon event where there's lots and lots of people. Wherever large numbers of people are gathered, there always seems to be somebody there holding up this sign. Have you ever noticed that? Somebody is always holding up a sign. John 3.16. You might see it in the streets downtown. You've seen it displayed at other places, perhaps. This sign, John 3.16. John 3, 16. And they're always in those big, can't-miss letters. You can't miss the sign. You know, I've seen it enough to know that it's not the same person posting it each time. It's a different person. I'm, I'm convinced it's a different person at all these different venues and events. But why the need to post the sign? Why not post some other verses of Scripture in the Bible? I mean, there are a lot of them, aren't there, to choose from? Why is John 3.16 the one that gets held up on the cardboard sign all the time? There's an assumption, perhaps, that everyone reading the sign 
knows what it says. And I would ask you this morning, do you know what it says? Do you know what it says? Can you recite it? Do you know what it means? Are you able to explain where it sits in the context in the scriptures? Do you know that Jesus is the one reciting this verse? If you have a particular Bible that has red letters, you notice John 3.16 is red letters. Jesus is the one speaking these words. Do you know that Jesus is speaking these words while having a late night conversation with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus? When the cardboard sign gets raised for people to read, what do you suppose the cardholder hopes to accomplish? What do you suppose the cardholder hopes others get out of reading the reference to John 3.16? Do you think the cardholder sees himself as a witness by holding up the sign? Listen, the only way this sign is helpful is if the audience can unravel its code. In this case, unravel the reference. If you don't know what John 3, 16 connects to, if you can't decipher what the name and the numbers mean, what's the point? Turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, to John's Gospel... In the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then what? John. John's where we're going to be, okay? In John, John chapter 3. Now, John is the fourth of four Gospels. When we talk about Gospels, we're talking about good news. So John is the fourth of four good news messages, okay? I'm getting real elementary and real basic, You know, we got a lot more younger people than we do older people. But even some of the older people need to know the basics too, right? Maybe some of the older people have forgotten the basics. We need to go back to basic training on on the Bible. John's gospel has a point, has a purpose to it, just like the other three gospels. And each of them has a bent and a focus that's unique to the writer as he's moved along by the Holy Spirit in his writing. And yet each one of them is writing about the same person, Who's he writing about? Jesus. He's writing about Jesus. The good news is Jesus himself, right? So Jesus is the main subject of the Gospels. Jesus is seen in the Gospels speaking. He's seen a testimony to the red letters. He's speaking in the Gospels, right? They chronicle the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus, the witnessing efforts of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about Jesus. The Gospels are about Jesus. Now, the three. So so John is the book, right? It's one of four Gospels. The three. Some of us, we just take this for granted. We've had this terminology and we just know it. But for those of us who may not know it here this morning, the three, the three, it represents the third chapter. In your Bible, the chapter headings probably have 
larger bold-faced numbers, right, in your Bible. The larger numbers in your Bible, those are the chapters. Those are the chapters. If you find number three in John, in the book of John, and you see the big, bold number three, that's the third chapter. So when we say, turn to John three, what we're really saying is turning your Bibles to John's good news message, big number three, chapter three. The colon, remember, we're decoding here. We're trying to figure this out because John 3.16, apart from understanding where it points us and what it says, is meaningless. So I'm I'm going to help each one of you understand what this is saying. The colon. The colon is nothing more than a separator. And what's it separating? It's separating the 3 and the what? The 16. The 3 and the 16, that's what it's separating. Everything on the left side of the colon is the chapter. Everything on the right side of the colon is the verse or verses. So in your Bible, as you look at John and his good news message and the big bold number three and you scroll down and you see the smaller number 16, that's the verse. So you have John's gospel, you have chapter three, a separator dividing chapter and verse. Chapter 3, verse 16. So in brief fashion, I've just given instructions on how to decode John 3, 16. Right? John's gospel, it's important we understand, it's written for a reason. At the end of John's gospel, in chapter 20, if you turn to chapter 20, and you look at the little numbers, 30 and 31, you read these words. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. These are written that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing, and believing translates, equates to life in his name. That's the purpose behind the writing of John's gospel. So the main purpose of this book, this good news message, this fourth of four gospel messages, the main purpose is to believe. Believe in whom, church? Believe in whom? Jesus. This is the interactive part here. It's okay. You can say this. It's Jesus. And what are we to believe about Jesus according to the scripture? That he is the Christ. That he's the very son of God. In fact, if you go backwards to the beginning, look at the large number one in John's book. Because right at the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. Talking about Christ himself. In the beginning, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the Son of God. He's God himself in flesh and bones. Verse 14 says that he came and for a time he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was here. John is writing about this. And the question comes, why does that make any difference? Here's why. Because belief in Jesus as the Son of God translates to life everlasting. Unbelief in Jesus as God's son leads to eternal destruction. Think this is a big deal? Absolutely is. 
See, in many ways, John's gospel then, it calls the listener to respond. Do you believe in Jesus or will you continue to reject Jesus? John's gospel confronts the reader with a decision. Now I want to stop right here for a moment because there are some of us in here who don't do a very good job of making a decision about things in this life. You know anybody like that? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one that you just, eh, him, haul, you don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do this. Or not. John's gospel calls us to a decision. Are you going to believe in this Jesus as the son of God or are you going to reject him? It's a call to believe in him in the sense of holding on to him, in the sense of embracing what he said is truth and living now in such a way that reflects a Christ-like disposition. The first occurrence of the word believe in John's gospel is in chapter 1 in the small number, verse 7, talking about John the Baptist. And, and it says, this man, John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that's Christ, that all through John the Baptist might believe. John came to bear witness, to be a witness, pointing people to the light, Christ, that all through John, through himself, that his life would bring people to Jesus, that they might believe. And John comes on the scene and he bears witness and he's, he's all about pointing people to Jesus. John 1.11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own people, they didn't even receive him. The very next verse says, but to as many as received him, as many as did receive him, some didn't receive him, but as many as did receive him, look at the text says in verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. In John chapter two, on the back end of changing the water to wine. You remember that account there at the beginning of chapter 2? If you look at verse 11, it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They saw his works. They believed in him. At the end of John chapter 2 and verse 23, it says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. People were seeing these wonderful things Jesus was doing and they believed in him. And then you get to chapter 3. That's the chapter we're in for this morning. Chapter 3. And you read right at the beginning, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews, a pretty significant person of the Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night. We stop right there just to give a little context. You know, what you find as you read through the first 21 verses of John 3 is this. Nicodemus doesn't know some things that he should. He he doesn't know some things that he ought to know. Remember, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a pretty high up 
person in terms of the spiritual leadership of the day. He's a teacher of the Jewish people and he's lacking sorely on the core components of the good news message Jesus embodied and came to share. He seems only to see Jesus as a teacher and a worker of signs. He says so much there in verse 2. No one can do these signs that, that you do unless God is with them. He seems at a loss on the concept of being born again when Jesus says, you know, you must be born again. He seems to be totally at a loss on that concept. He seems confused on the ministry of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is talking about that in verse 8. He seems unable to grasp what we would call the basics of the Christian life. And as a Jewish leader, he was well acquainted with the law, but not so well acquainted with life in Christ. Now, you might be here this morning well acquainted with your religious background. You were brought up, some of you, in the church. You heard many sermons up to this point. You're well acquainted with worship and song and with the Lord's Supper and with the prayers and with uh, the preached word. You've come to know those elements on a Sunday gathering. But perhaps you're not so well acquainted with what it is to walk with Jesus. You know the structures, you know the forms, but you don't know and haven't quite understood, haven't grasped, haven't got a handle on how to walk with Jesus. And perhaps like Nicodemus, you're deficient in your understanding of what it is to walk with him. Jesus in John chapter 3 is explaining to Nicodemus what God did in sending his son Jesus to earth. He prepares Nicodemus for what's to come. What's to come would be the cross. And he's instructing him on what he must do in order to walk in the light and not remain in darkness. So you read John chapter 3, and, and as a teacher of God's word, I have to admit, it's, it's quite humbling to read John 3. I imagine a one-on-one with Jesus and immediately feeling about this small. Can you imagine having a one-on-one conversation with Jesus about spiritual things? Think about it. When you're in the presence of God the Son... You're not so smart after all. Humbling moment. You might be well educated. You might have lots of letters after your name. But you realize when you're standing toe to toe with Jesus, God in the flesh, that all of what you know pales in comparison. It's awkward to hear Nicodemus' question as it pertains to being born a second time. Oh, it's like, it's just awkward. Can a man go back into his mother's room and be born again a second? Oh, it's painful to hear that question. But here's Nicodemus, and he's come at night. We don't know exactly why he made this at night, other than the fact that he didn't want anybody else privy to this conversation. There's something here he wanted to have this one-on-one with Jesus. And so in the midst of Jesus instructing the Jewish teacher on things he should have known, we encounter a history lesson. 
How many of you like history? Anybody like history in the house? Good. All right, good. Jesus is going to instruct Nicodemus on a history lesson. And I call it a history lesson for this Jewish leader, Nicodemus, would have been very familiar with the words of Jesus. Now, you might not be as familiar with the history lesson as Nicodemus would have been. But I want you to know that Nicodemus would have connected to what Jesus shares with him starting in verse 14. Because Jesus takes the past and he channels it directly to the work of Jesus at the cross. Which in the stillness of this late night conversation is yet future. Hasn't happened yet. Cross hasn't come yet. But he's helping Nicodemus understand there's a cross coming. He's helping Nicodemus understand not only is there a cross coming, but there's a redemptive work that's about to happen. A redemptive work that is going to intersect directly with you, Nicodemus. And by the way, it's a a redemptive work that intersects with every single one of you here. Not just a Jewish leader, but every single one of you. That's why John 3.16 is so incredibly important. Because it intersects in the lives of every single one of us here. It's helpful to get a handle on the history lesson so that we might better understand the truth that's presented in John 3.16. So look at John 3.14. Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Now, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here in the context about spiritual things. And then he speaks of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21 for just a moment. Numbers chapter 21. Go ahead. You can turn them. It's good to turn the pages. It kind of gets the gold dust off the edges. You can turn them, flip them. And it's Numbers 21. And in Numbers chapter 21... One of the things uh, leading up to Numbers 21, you see in in 20 that Moses and Aaron at this point have been rebuked for not believing God's words. Uh, They tested him at the waters of Meribah, right? Uh, Edom, you see in chapter 20, Edom refuses to allow the people of God to pass through their land. We see at the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies and the people are mourning for 30 days. And now they travel by the way of the Red Sea. And the people are grumbling once again. Look at Numbers 21 at the end of verse 4. It says, the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. A lot of difficult circumstances have been going on lately for the people of God in Numbers 20 and 21. The soul was discouraged along the way. If we pick it up in verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Hey, by the way, that's always a bad idea to speak against God. But that's what was going on here. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. <laughs> Who gave him the bread? God did. So, verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. Now, I would imagine that there probably aren't too many of us in here who have been bitten by a fiery serpent. But I would imagine that all of us can have, we have this picture of what it might have been like to have been bitten by a fiery serpent. 
probably not real pleasing. Probably didn't feel really good, right? That's the picture. The Lord sent these serpents among the people. They bit the people. And look what happened, the result. Many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's Moses the intercessor, right? He prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent... He lived. Nicodemus knew this history of God's people. Here in John's gospel, before we read John 3.16, we read the two verses that lead into it. The history lesson prepares us for what Jesus is about to do days ahead at the cross. While we may initially see this lifted up terminology and see the comparison with the pole of the serpent and the cross of Jesus Christ, there's more here worth considering. In Numbers 21, we see that the people were rebelling against both God and Moses. Rebellion against God is never a good place to stand. Grumbling about your daily fare isn't wise when God has been graciously providing for all your needs. You see, the history lesson in Numbers 21 is set in a context of rebellion against God and his appointed leader. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish leader about spiritual matters in John 3. Nicodemus is unveiled as he stands before Jesus. I highly doubt Nicodemus saw himself as rebellious that night, entering into the conversation with Jesus. But as Jesus speaks and he shares the history lesson from the life of Israel, Nicodemus begins to hear the impact of such rebellion against God. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Listen. Rebellion against God leads to death. The Lord sends real serpents that really bit the people of God that really led to many deaths. Severe consequences for rebelling against God. Do you see this in the text? Severe consequences. And next, I want you to notice what the people of God do. They go to Moses, their leader, and they cry out and they say, We have sinned against God. For we've spoken against God. Pray for us that God would take these serpents away from us. So what do we see here? We see a recognition of sin against God. It's, it's David in the psalm, Against you and you only have I sinned. There's a recognition, a crying out that they've sinned against God. They've come to understand their rebellion has led to this death. And they cry out. 
There's a desire to get right with God. They ask Moses to intercede for them. Listen, there's a longing for the people of God in Numbers 21 to live and not die. They don't want to die. They want to live. Notice what God does. The Lord instructs Moses to make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole and it shall be that, listen, everyone who is bitten, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses does what God instructs him to do. And if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. In other words, what God said would happen actually happened. The very thing God told Moses to do, the very instructions he gave Moses, Moses carried out, and God did exactly what he told Moses he was going to do. God instructs Moses to erect the pole, and to that pole he was called to fix a fiery serpent. The idea was this. Those who had been bitten by one of the real serpents were given an opportunity to live and not die. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the chaos in the camp? Serpents, fiery serpents, all over biting people, people dying. Chaos. Trauma, tragedy. A rebellious people against God. And yet this God is making provision to rescue them from a sure death. Isn't that interesting? I hope by this point you're starting to see why Jesus uses this particular history lesson with Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, he says in verse 14 of John 3, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why is the Son of Man to be lifted up? John 3.15 says, gives us a purpose clause, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus core spiritual principles centered on the cross of Christ and man's needful response to that cross. Understand, it's not just a message pointing the Jewish leader to the cross, but it's the message of the cross. It's foolishness to a bunch of people, but it's the message of the cross coupled with an exposing of one's rebellion against God. Notice the pole that Moses made. It wasn't just a bare pole stuck in the ground. It was a pole with a fiery serpent on it. Why would God have Moses put a replica of the fiery serpent on the pole? Listen, when those who were bitten looked to the pole, they were immediately reminded of their sin. And at the same time, are immediately reminded of the gracious, merciful hand of God to do what they didn't deserve. They were allowed to live. See, it's due to their rebellion against God that the fiery serpents show up on the scene. Look to the pole and live. That was the message in Numbers 21. Look to the pole and live. 
The message here in John 3.16 captures the history lesson for us for sure. But as Jesus speaks, he's delivering a lesson for everyone to grab a hold of. 3.16 says, for God so loved who? The world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, in Numbers 21, the primary concern for the people is living and not dying. The people were afraid of being bit by the fiery serpents. They didn't want to die. In John 3, 16, the Lord Jesus is primarily concerned with instructing Nicodemus and you and me on spiritual life and spiritual death. Something much greater than a physical death. Why, why would God, as we think about this, why would God have Moses make a pole with a fiery serpent and offer a way for people to live? I want you to consider this marvelous truth right here in, this, in the scripture. A holy God secures an undeserving rescue for a rebellious people. A holy God secures an undeserving rescue for a rebellious people. Reminds me of the passage in the New Testament that God demonstrates his own unique love for us in this. That while we were yet what? All cleaned up? Looking good? No. While we were yet sinners, Christ came. That's when he sent him. Grace, mercy, love, forgiveness. Those are words that come to mind as I think about this. In Numbers 21, the people were called to look to the pole and live. In John 3, 16, the people are called to believe in Christ and live eternally. John 3, 16 has three truths about God vital for every single one's understanding. Here they are. Give them to you in bullet fashion. First one is God's love, right? God so loved the world. He's the source of love. He is love, the Bible says. He extends love to the world. Consider that his love goes forth to a world that largely despises him. He loves the unlovable. That's who he is. God's love. Second, God's giving. God's giving. For for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave. His love manifests itself in the giving of his only begotten son. He gave his son for sinful man. No serpent on a pole, but God's only begotten son is lifted up. Third truth here I want you to understand in John 3, 16. Not only about God's love, not only about God's giving, but I want you to understand God's authority. God's authority. He alone grants authority for you to be called a child of God. He makes it possible for you to live and not die. He makes it possible for you to walk in light and not remain in darkness. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. By God's authority, he grants that to be so. For God so loved the world... The next word in the English translation is that. But really, uh, it's a different word than the, the next that that happens in the scripture. For God so loved the world consequently, or therefore, for God so loved the world consequently, he gave his only begotten son. 
And for what purpose then did he give his only begotten son? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, there are three truths about God in this verse. His love, his giving, his authority. Coupled with these truths about God, there's one requirement for man. One requirement. Those who believe, believe. That's what it's calling us to. Whoever believes. You know, there are a lot of folks that want to talk about Christianity and how narrow-minded it is. This is so far from being narrow-minded. This is simple. That's what I subtitled this message, The Simplicity of John 3, 16. Because whoever, the world. I don't see, I don't see a, a, a holy huddle there in what, what the Lord's saying in this scripture. Whoever, whoever believes, those words in John 1, 12 are two significant words to remember. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right. There's his authority. It's his authority, his right. He gives the right for one to become a child of God to those who believe. Receive, believe. God gives his greatest gift to pay for our sins, to rescue a rebellious people, to enable those who were once in darkness to now walk in light as he is in the light. God has made provision for your salvation. He's made a way, as the chorus goes, where there seems to have previously been no way. He's worked in ways that we cannot see, and he is about making your abundant life a reality. Let's not for a moment here in this passage of Scripture think that this is solely up to man as to whether he's going to be a child of God or not. The work of God's salvation through Jesus Christ is a work that God finished at the cross and through his subsequent resurrection. The everlasting life that's spoken of here in the text has been paid for in full by Christ's redeeming work alone. And John 3.16 speaks of Christ's finished work and man's responsibility to believe in his name. See, that belief translates to a behavior that manifests itself in abiding. John 15, abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ, walking worthy, fellowshipping with God through the Son. What remains here is your response. We are always the responders of God's grace, are we not? Always. And when I stand and, and lay out what the Bible says about receiving and believing, I'm in no way canceling out the marvelous work of God through Jesus Christ. In no way at all. It's sort of like what Paul says in Philippians 2 where he calls us to work out our salvation. Work it out as God is working in and through us to both do and accomplish his will. There's work to be done. There's responsibility here. He's made it pretty simple. He's done the work. Through his son, he's done the work. I'm hoping here that you see in the text... It's your desire to live and not die. Like the people back in Numbers 21, they, they were really not wanting to die. They wanted to live. And when those fiery serpents came on the scene, the people were crying out to God to live. They didn't want to die. They confessed their sins. Tell me, we're talking about stakes much higher than just simple living and dying. Do we cry out to God in the same way so that we might live eternally? 
and not just live half-heartedly. Or some of the terms you see in the scripture, lukewarmly, apathetically. But there ought to be a living that is filled with the, the power and the fuel of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You sit here today and you have no need to go to a pastor or to a priest as the people did with Moses. Moses, pray for us. Moses, pray for us. We've got quite a privilege, friends. You see, because Christ already went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, the temple curtain tore. Remember that? It tore. Providing access now for all of us, we can go to him, and we can cry out to him, and we can confess our sins and let him know, just as the scripture says, we can agree with him that we have been rebellious, we've rebelled against God, and we're asking him to forgive us our sins. The Bible says that a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can now go to God. You can confess your sins to him. You can repent of your sins. And you can ask him to wash you in the fountain filled with blood as the hymn writer sings. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You can acknowledge your need to be plunged beneath that healing stream. That you too would lose all your guilty stains. He washes you whiter than snow and he's a God who waits to cleanse you from all unrighteousness for God so loved the world that he gave. You see, we've been looking at why Jesus came to this earth. He came as a babe in swaddling cloths, but he left this earth as an overcomer. The Bible says he's an overcomer. He was the one who conquered death. Death no longer has a sting attached to it. The serpent's bite has the power of death, but the one who made the serpent has essentially defanged him. He has no bite. He has no sting, and he's made abundant life possible. Believe upon the name of Jesus and receive his gift of everlasting life today. Don't put this off any longer. You know the truth of the scriptures, but for some reason you've been delaying. And I want to ask you and call you today to delay no longer. What a great way to begin a new year. making today the day of salvation, getting yourself right with God, coming to an understanding of what it is to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. He's already started the reconciliation work necessary, and now he waits. He's a patient God. He's long-suffering. He's not desiring that any one of us perish. And he's told us in his word, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life he's making it available to you today in his word see the stakes are much greater than physically dying Jesus is declaring that a way has been made through the cross of Jesus for man to be reconciled to God, to be brought near. A way has been made for man to be called a child of God. I want you to think about this. Acts of rebellion done against God and yet 
God makes a way possible to include whoever in the sheepfold of everlasting life. Grace, grace, God's grace. Remember the hymn? This is grace that pardons and cleanses within. And it's grace that's greater than all my sin. It's greater than all my sin. He came and sent Jesus while I was still sinning. Some of you in here need to hear that news because some of you may be thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my past. Well, it doesn't matter. I know what the Bible says and I know that his grace is greater than any one of your sins. That's good news. That's the gospel we need to hear. John 3.16. Hold this up again here for us. A name. Some numbers. Separator, colon. Chapter, verse. Unraveled, it points us to the Bible. God's word. And when we at last turn to John's gospel and read these red letter words spoken by Jesus to the Jewish leader Nicodemus, we're confronted, much like Nicodemus, with a decision. What do you do with such a Jesus? And how do you respond to such a loving, gracious, merciful, and compassionate God? When you see the sign next time, I want you to think of four things. First of all, the sign reminds us of Jesus himself. He spoke the words found in John 3.16. Let it remind you of Jesus himself. Secondly, the sign reminds us of his amazing love toward a rebellious world. His amazing love toward a rebellious world. That includes all of us. We've all fallen short of God's perfect holy standard. I want you to remember that this sign, when you see it next time, it reminds us of his sacrificial giving, which involved the giving of his only son, Jesus. He gave his absolute best for rebellious sinners. And fourth, as you see this sign, I want the sign to remind you of his supreme authority in your life. God has granted his son ultimate authority to grant everlasting life to those who believe in his name. Condemnation awaits those who reject God's son and his finished work at the cross. John 3, in fact, that same chapter, if you still have your Bible open, in the end of John chapter 3, the last verse, 36, says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe. Friends, this could not be any simpler. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The love of God abides on on the one who believes in the Son. The wrath of God abides on the one who does not believe in the Son. Is everyone clear on this? The love of God received produces everlasting life. 
The wrath of God received equates to eternal torment and separation from God. There is no third option. There's no gray area here. The Bible speaks of one believing and receiving God through Jesus Christ alone or rejecting God and his amazing love. So here in John 3.16, it seems like the invitation has been sent. The invitation's been sent. And just like the invitation in real life, when you send an invitation to a party, the invitation that gets in your mailbox and you open it up and you read it, there's a party going on, and that party has a date. Next Friday, 7 o'clock. Now, if next Friday, 7 o'clock rolls around and you don't make it to the party, you miss the party. We got an invitation that's been given to us by God. It's limited time only. The Lord's coming back. We're going to die. Those are two things that I'm pretty certain of as I read the scripture. It's limited time. The invitation's there. For whomever will believe, what will that day hold when you die? Everlasting life with God or eternal separation from God? Listen, if I could personalize some of the words from Romans 8 as we close. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, verse 1. A little bit later in Romans, we see that if God is for, I'll personalize it, if God is for you, Who can be against you? A little bit later, we could personalize this other question. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing, no one can separate you from the love of Christ. The message is not look to the sign and live. The message is look to the Son and live. Look to him. Believe in him. And receive him as your all in all. John 3.16 holds forth everlasting life for the one who believes in Jesus desiring to put both hands to the plow from this day forward. No turning back for the child of God. Though none go with him, the child of God is still going to abide with his master and Lord. And this message is the same for young and for old here today, for rich, for poor, for white, for black, for male, for female, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. These things are written in John's good news message that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. holding forth the word of God. I'm asking this morning, do you believe in this Jesus of the scriptures? Do you believe in this Jesus of the scriptures? If not, what's holding you up from believing in his gift, his grace gift today? If you are believing, if you do believe, are both hands on the plow? Have you resolved to follow him and not turn back? 
Are you abiding in Jesus, bearing much fruit? Is his word in you? See, John 3.16 has a lot to say, not just to the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, but to you and to me. Death and life are in the balance. Remember that death has been conquered. It now has no sting. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I want you to listen one more time to the simplicity of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, here's the greatest invitation. Whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, this is one of the best messages, and it's all found in one verse. Simple. But it does require a response of every single one of us here. God has initiated this work through Christ, his son, at the cross and subsequent resurrection. He is alive. He's no longer dead. He overcame the grave. He has begun that reconciliation work and now he waits and he waits and he waits. Will you today make him the Lord of your life? Not just in word. Not just in what you believe about him. But taking what you believe about him from the scriptures and Behave in such a way that what gets manifested is the life of Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word. Thank you for John 3.16. And I pray, Lord, in these days ahead, if we ever see this sign at any venue or event, it would be a reminder to us of Christ himself. It would be a reminder to us of your amazing love toward us, that while we were still sinners, You sent your son because you just loved us. Out of your love, you sent him. It would remind us of your sacrificial giving in sending not just someone, but you sent your only son to do this work. And Lord, it would also be a reminder of your ultimate authority in our lives. That you are the one who said that whoever believes in your son You've granted the authority for us to have everlasting life to be with you. Oh, Father, thank you for that wonderful news. And I pray, Lord, we would remember that we too have a responsibility as we read John 3.16. And our responsibility that you've given to us is to believe in the name of Jesus, to receive him as Lord of our lives, and to be stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. I pray, Lord that the name of Jesus would be lifted high in our lives. Just as that pole was erected back in Numbers 21, and just as the sun was about to be lifted up on the cross, I pray that your name would be lifted high in our lives, that others, as they look to us, they would see, they would recognize something, that we would let our light shine in such a way that others see Christ in us desire to follow the same God. May that be our hope. May that be our objective. May that be our mission in these days ahead. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.